welcome to Security Dojo, the podcast that helps you and your organization stay oriented in the world of cybersecurity. In this episode, we invited Nate Warfield, former Microsoft employee and co-founder of CTI League, as we discussed the Eternal Blue vulnerability and his impactful work today. Welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to today's podcast episode featuring a remarkable individual whose contributions have left an indelible mark of the world of cybersecurity. Allow us to introduce Nate Warfield. Born and raised in Hawaii, work from F5 Networks to Microsoft and the Microsoft Security Response Center, and now holding the position as Director of Research at Eclipsum. He co-founded the non-profit CTI League to help protect healthcare organizations during the global pandemic. Nate is well known in the security community and his many talks are highly appreciated as well as his security research. Warm welcome, Nate. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, cool. Cool. We, we it's our first guest on the episode, so that's uh, really nice. It's, uh, let's let's start up on the on the top. <laughs> nice to have you as, a, as our guinea pig. Um, yeah, uh-huh. it would be awesome. Um, yeah, so we uh, you and I met uh, Nate uh, met uh, a couple of times in uh, in um, in Seattle um, in, in Redmond, both on the um, uh, when I was there for the. Um, um, the Blue Hat event, and then on the uh, when I was there for the MEP summit, uh, so I had a good time um, sharing a few drinks and uh, share some awesome stories. Right, so um, born and raised in in Hawaii, like that was a su- surprise for me. I didn't know that uh, that was a new thing. Like, how do you like, go from Hawaii to um, to Seattle, what, why would you leave, like the Paradise Island? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I, a minor correction. I, yeah, I did grow up in Hawaii. I wasn't born there, um, but I did spend like 12-ish years living there as a, from like a, a small child up until I was, you know, 21. Um, as much as it is beautiful, you find out pretty quickly that you're on a rock, like 3,000 miles away from everything. So when you go to high school there, you're kind of, you know, you're in high school, you want to go see the world, you... You can't even catch a, you can't, there's no bridges or boats that go to the other islands. You have to fly there, even though they see them over the horizon. Um, so after a while, you just kind of get island fever, as they call it. And uh, for me, island fever coincided with the dot-com boom in the like late 90s. So, you know, I'm watching kids that are my age buying Lamborghinis with, you know, pets.com stock. And I wanted to go make my fortune. So... Yeah, I also, I don't, uh, being a, a, a Viking and Nordic heritage, I, my, my skin tone does not really work well with a lot of sunshine. So I was uh, never able to get a tan and I'm not a real big fan of the heat. So I was like, all right, well, it's either Silicon Valley or Seattle at the time. So yeah, Seattle it was. And I've been here for 24 years, I think, at this point. So that's 23 years of rain then. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
That's what we, we keep telling everybody that because we want them to stop moving here, but everybody from California is driving our real estate prices up. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. But you have uh, met virtually before. Uh, you met physically as well in Redmond. So how did you uh, run into each other, Matthias? Uh, I don't. I don't remember exactly when when we met the first time. Um, but I know at one point uh, we were uh, driving a, a security vulnerability that we discovered in one of the um, uh, Microsoft services. Uh, we had some uh, emails back and forth with MSRC and. Um, uh, at the time, I reached out to Nate, who I knew was working there, read some chats on Twitter um, uh, back in the days as well, and um, uh, reached out to you and, uh, and asked for help, how we should approach this, and um, if there's anything, like, um, uh, I think that was one of the first, um, uh, it was my first vulnerability that I sent uh, to Microsoft together with Stefan, and uh, so we wanted to wanted to have, like, uh, does this look good? Is there anything else we should um, we should add to this and, and, and so on. And we got some help and we got our first recognition as well, um, which was was really awesome. And um, yeah, so I think that's, um, um, I mean, it goes back for, for many years. And uh, what I think it's a, it's a part of the, the security community as well. To, uh, I mean, to me, you, you have a chat with people and suddenly you meet with each other. And, yeah, I want to say we met in Europe. I think we met at like Brucon or Troopers back in like 2018 is where I, I think I feel like we met and hung out there and probably exchanged contact info because, yeah, that was when I was still at MSRC and going to conferences. And I kind of made it a, made it a point to introduce myself and, you know, they say, hey, this is this is how you get a hold of me. If you're not getting the, uh, if you're, you know, it could be challenging to deal with MSRC at, at times then. And I guess even still today, I hear it's a. Suboptimal at times. It's always about the boundaries, right? Yeah, yeah. All right. So when you moved to um, uh, to uh, to Seattle, and uh, so at F Five Networks, I guess uh, all listeners are uh, well aware about the, the organization F Five. Uh, but what did you do there? Where did you start? Yeah. So yeah, I moved. So I moved to. I'll, I'll give you my my sort of quick background then. Um, yeah, so I moved here, moved to Seattle um, the, the day after they tear gassed downtown Seattle for the, the World Trade Organization riots in 1999, which was fun. Um, started at a dot-com that, surprise, surprise, went bankrupt. And then I started at a five, uh, it was like 2001, 2002-ish. Uh, and I was initially just doing like tier one network support. Um, I decided that network engine, you know, I was 20-something at the point, 21, 22. And I decided that network engineering was where I wanted to go versus systems administration. Um, I touched Exchange 5.5 and Active Directory like three times, and that was enough to me to know that I didn't want to do that for a job. So, yeah, I worked at F5 for a while, um, left there to go work for another startup, and that one also failed. Went back to F5 and then spent the, the, the next seven or so years uh, attached to Microsoft's account. So at the time, and I think even still today, Microsoft ran, uh, they had, I think when I started there, they had something like 1,500 F5s in their network. And by the time I, I was no longer involved with F5 and Microsoft, they had close to 4,000 of them. Um, so yeah, I was basically there. I was there, the guy they called for design, deployment, troubleshooting, bug fixes, like 
their one-stop shop guy for Microsoft to talk to at F5. And then seven odd years into this, I got kind of tired of working for them. Um, just some of the ways that they, some of the ways they ran their business and handled their customers, I wasn't a fan of. So I just left and went to Microsoft. Essentially, the joke was instead of them having to pick up the phone to call me, they could just walk into my office. I went to work with the same, the same team that I'd been supporting they just hired me in as a full, as an employee. So, you know, I was, I already knew the network. I already knew all of the way that they did things. And so, yeah, I was, I was there for a couple of years. Um, then let's see here. They started, they were about to get basically sort of swallowed by Azure networking, which was uh, all SDN stuff. And uh, <laughs> the, the defining moment for me deciding to leave my networking engineer career and switched to security, which had always been a, an interest of mine for, you know, since I was in middle school. Um, I sat in a meeting with a kid who was probably 20 something years old. And he, we were talking about SDN and he, he looks at me, he's like, well, hold on. He's like, let me, let me explain to you how TCP IP works. And I kind of looked at this kid and I'm like, in my head, I'm like, dude, I've been building networks since you were still playing with dolls. Like, this is not going to work if I have to like, let you tell me how things work. So I didn't really want to learn the dev oops or dev ops thing. And uh, so, yeah, I ended up just going over to MSRC and running Windows patching for four and a half years. Uh, that sort of, and then Defender for nine months. Defender, well, I guess MDE is what they call it now. So I did research for MDE for a while. And yeah, left to, a, left to another startup that basically failed in a year. And now I'm at Eclipsium, which is, fortunately, we just got our, had our six-year anniversary of couple weeks back so fingers crossed this is my last startup that i have to work at <laughs> <laughs> nice but uh, how was msrc when you started to work there i mean what i understand is that um they're going through some changes over the years and uh, i mean what's how was it at the time when you started and um how was it when you left it was uh it was a very interesting team when i started um there was sort of still a the there was a bit of what we kind of called the old guard was still around. There was at the time most of the people that worked in what they call the program manager role, which is essentially like help desk tickets. Only you're working with vulnerability reports instead of like I can't dial up to the internet reports. Um, so it's just it's basically just ticket management uh, and then re talking you know customer service if you will talking to researchers. But most of the people that I that were my peers had a pretty good understanding of security. Um, there was a bunch of people that had been former government contractors with agent or with companies that the U S spy agencies contract to build malware for them. Um, so we had sort of like the ex spooks. I think our director at the time had come from the NSA. Um, so there was a, there was this kind of cool, like, okay, there's a lot of really good security people in this group. Um, and then the, you know, the, the job was busy. Um, it wasn't so exceptionally busy. Obviously, I was able to to start doing a lot of research in my spare time and building conference talks and traveling around and doing it. Um, but there was just a uh, the culture made it challenging. It was a um, that role is hard to it's hard to excel in any way that gets you promoted out of it. Right? There's not a you know there's you're basically doing the same job 24 hours a day or, or I should say 40 hours a week. There's not a lot of ways to sort of branch out of that role, right? It's not like you're, you know, all of a sudden a developer who designs a new feature or, you know, you, you improve an existing feature. 
So it got a little tedious. Um, there was some, they had a quite a bit of management turnover and personnel turnover. And it just, uh, it's, I really enjoy the work that I did there. Like, I'm proud. I, I think that I got to meet a lot of the security research community. Obviously, I'm here talking with folks who I met through that job, essentially. Um, and we did a lot of good protecting, you know, people would ask me, what do you do for a living? I'm like, well, every month, you know, 2 billion people are more secure on the internet because of what I do. It's kind of a cool, you know, it's a cool feeling, but it eventually, it was just, it got to be tiring some of the bureaucracy and the red tape and all of that. So I, you know, switched out of it into something that I'd found research to be much more interesting than, you know, pushing out CVEs, um, after pushing out, I think I've shipped... 2000 CVEs in my time I was there, something like that. Um, oh, yeah. So there was a, yeah, I, I'd done enough of that. Uh, and I was ready for something else. <laughs> so, um, I guess you were working there when we had the, um, eternal blue chaos, uh, wanna yeah. cry. So, um, I mean, how's, uh, I mean, what, what's happening in the room when, when you discover and start to work with such vulnerability? Well, that's an interesting one, right? So, you know, Microsoft will, they will, uh, they have refused to comment on how they were told about that vulnerability. Uh, I think there was a Washington Post article where somebody from the NSA uh, went out and said that they had told Microsoft about it. Um, I'm going to just remain neutral and not say one way or the other what happened since I wasn't actually present when whatever happened happened. Um, what I will say is that we got a very uh, interesting set of typewritten, um, very vague pieces of paper that sort of said, like, you know, it was it was written in a way that you could tell it's a government. It was like, you know, what's the capacity? The capability was full remote. And then it was sort of like over here in this part of SMB during this certain session setup, there's this thing that's not checked. And it was very vague. Um, and in full credit to the engineers at Microsoft, they went from, you know, an extremely vague piece of information, um, just because in, in the way the U.S. government works, even exploit code, even, even a detailed description of where, you know, the code paths are can be considered classified information. So there's a whole bureaucratic government red tape process to even share anything. Um, but the engineers at Microsoft were able to take that. And there was actually three different things. Um, there's SMB, there's Search Indexer, and there was another one. I can't remember. It might have been a, like an LNK file thing. Um, but they were able from there to go and find a whole bunch of vulnerabilities. Um, and everybody just kind of lumps it all together as MS-1710. Well, there was the WannaCry vulnerability, uh, which the CVE, the specific CVE escapes me. But there's a whole bunch of other like related vulns that were found around it. So they didn't just patch the one that was used by Eternal Blue. Um, they patched a bunch of other things that they found in the process. Which was fun because then, you know, if we take so the you know, that that work started back in the in the winter of 2016. You know, obviously August of 2016, the shadow brokers had said, hey, we have all this stuff. They released a certain chunk of it, which I think was like the Cisco router, like zero days or vulnerabilities. Some of the, the network device stuff was published in the summer, late summer of 2016. But the really big package that had the fuzz bunch tool and all of the other, the eternal blue exploit and, and um, um, whatever double pulsar implant, that stuff was sort of held back. Uh, and if I have to theorize, 
my theory is that uh, at some time in the summer, somebody in the U.S. government said, yeah, they leaked that part of the tool set. That means they probably have all of the tool set, which means we should probably tell Microsoft about some things that we don't know what's going to happen with them, um, which was also what so it made it fun was then, you know, we shipped the patch in March of 2017. You know, not a whole lot of people seem to install it. And then I believe it was like a month to the day later uh, in April. The shadow brokers released the password for the second data set and i'd come in I, I was one of the early you know come in at six o'clock in the morning guys and uh you know colleagues like hey you should probably go check this thing out that password's out and i know you have the actual like the downloaded file so yeah punch it in decrypts there's a humongous set of stuff so it's you know pick up the pick up the red phone call everybody and say yo we've got a, a humongous problem that just landed on our laps and then MSRC just shut down all day. We basically just everybody stopped doing their normal jobs and focused on taking it apart, looking at what the vulnerabilities were, looking at trying to look at post-exploitation modules, figuring out if any of the post-exploitation modules had vulnerabilities inside of them that they were exploiting. Um, you know, and all, of course, all the while, the tech news is just going nuts, like, oh, my God, there's this huge thing. Microsoft is so screwed. There's all these zero days for exchange and for you know, for, for Windows and for SMB. Um, and I think, I, I think, so I was, I think I was in there from like six in the morning that, that day till six or seven at night that night. So it was a pretty long day for, and I'm pretty much, and people were there longer than I was, but by like nine or 10 o'clock that night, MSRC was able to post a blog saying, yeah, these are all, these are all vulnerabilities. All of these exploits are legitimate. However, if you're fully patched, none of it works. Which, of course, then, of course, the industry was like, well, how would Microsoft have patched all of these vulnerabilities if somebody didn't tell them, right? Um, but it was kind of cool to see, like, hey, you know, it, at least, you know, as we know, Microsoft gets a, uh, they get a lot of um, criticism, some of it rightly so, some of it, I think, is a little overblown. But most of the time, it's like, yeah, Microsoft can't fix anything in time, that Windows has all these vulnerabilities, they're, you know, they're the problem making the world insecure, but at least in that one instance, was like, yeah, Windows has vulnerabilities, but here's the patch. You know, obviously, as we would find out a month later, not enough people installed the patch when Raw Cry hit. Um, but yeah, it was it was one of those fun points of like, wow, we actually we actually got ahead of things for once. I mean, that's that's it's a really awesome uh, story, and I I remember these days. Uh, I I remember when the patch was released. I think it was like January or February or something. It was March. Um, yeah. 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 Yeah, March. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Um, and uh, the company I was working for at the time, uh, when we read the security bulletin and noticed that there's a patch release for Windows XP, this is something bad, it's something we need to patch now. Uh, so that was one of our decisions, like, all right, Microsoft is releasing a patch for Windows XP, uh, which has been end of life for uh, for a long time. And um, uh, so this is some something we, we really need to do. And then when Monocry hit the world, it was like, uh, we didn't have any any compromise at all, and it was um, yeah, it was a good decision apparently. <laughs> but we also had access to some uh, CTI data, and what I can remember, I mean, WannaCry went on for for a long time after that, even though it was so super clear that just install this patch to stop it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it did. I mean, I, I believe even now, um, I want to say if you look on Gray Noise, like, you know, who, who they picks up people doing scanning and trying to do exploitation on the internet, I believe that 
Eternal Blue and is still being like, there's still bots out there attempting to throw Eternal Blue or there's machines that are infected that are still possibly trying to throw Eternal Blue. Although, you know, with, you know, we all know the story of, uh, what's his name, Marcus Hutchins and him registering the domain, which sort of was the kill switch, but there still appears to be enough systems that are out there trying to exploit it, you know, six years later. Yeah, that, it's funny you point out the XP thing because that was that was one of the ones where like it, I th- in 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 retrospect, in retrospect with you know hindsight always being twenty twenty, they probably should have made a bigger deal about that vault. Um, they probably should have put a little more emphasis on like you really 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 need to patch this thing. But at the, remember at the time we shipped the patch, we didn't know what was going to happen with the, the fuzz bunch tool set. Right, nobody knew. I don't even know that if if I don't even know if Microsoft was told anything about like whether where it came from or its, its significance or if it was just a here's a little secret thing that fell out of the sky and you know you should know about it. So you know hard hard to we couldn't have predicted what was going to happen. But it's glad I'm glad to hear that you guys realized that hey they gave away an XP patch for free. That's not normal. We should probably follow this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that, that was like like the uh, the, the red flag of that uh, that uh, patch Tuesday, and um, yes, yeah, so it's um, I think that's um, um, those vulnerabilities. I mean, I used that in a um, in one assignment. I think it was like one and a half two years ago. Uh, that vulnerability it works like a charm, and because uh, people don't patch, I mean that's a general issue. Uh, I think we, I want to go back to that uh, in terms of patching and what you actually do now uh, in terms of firmware security and those kind of things. Um, but on um, there, there are other things. Um, one thing that I, both me and uh, and Stefan participated in uh, was the CTI League. Um, I know you were one of the the founders of that, and uh, yeah. I know you and I had a chat. I, I think it was just before Citali was started. Like, what can we do? I mean, we're a huge community in working with IT. We have uh, good connections with people in the community. Is, is there something we can do? Because we saw all these hospitals being um, um, uh, ransomware and, and, and stuff. And um, so we had a chat, and I was like, yeah, I don't know what, what we can do. And then after some time, I noticed on, on Twitter again, so yes, for the listeners, Twitter is, is a really good source. Um, uh, but I noticed the CTI League, and we had some chat, and you invited me to that um, in, into that uh, Slack community. Um, so what? How did that happen? So that was a that was an interesting one, right? So that you know, in in the uh, I'd done a bunch of conference talks in 2018, and then I took 2019 off because my uh, son was born that year. And then I kind of decided, I was like, you know, I, I continued to do research and was going to come back out and do more, more conference stuff in 2020. And I actually, I managed to get to uh, Blue Hat Israel in February of 2020, like right before the whole world shut down. And one of the things I had been talking about was a, uh, a vulnerability in a Citrix uh, ADC, the Citrix, Citrix's VPN or SSL VPN product. Um, and you know how it had been discovered. I think it had been disclosed in like December of 2019. A bunch of exploitation had picked up in January of 2020. So you know I, I would used um, a Shodan to find 
systems that were still vulnerable to this. And I think I've worked with that one. I think I've worked with John and Shodan to help him build a, a test that could confirm vulnerability on these net scalers. So, you know, fast forward to March where, you know, I'm still, you know, I was still going into the office at Microsoft because I, I could, and I had a nicer setup there than at home, but, um, I'm just kind of, you know, I had a lot of spare time working, being the only guy in the, the complex. So I was looking around reading news and I saw, like you said, an article about a hospital, I think it was in Germany, that had gotten ransomware. And I kind of just made this connection of like, wow, that's a, you know, this is a really bad time for a hospital to get shut down by ransomware, right? And three years ago, ransomware was a problem, but it wasn't nearly as pervasive as it is today, right? It was still kind of new-ish. Um, but I kind of saw the writing on the wall and said, okay, this is a time where if ever a hospital is just going to be like, you know, just suck it up and pay the ransom. It's going to be when they have an, you know, an ER full of people dying of COVID or what have you. So I, I did a showdown query looking for net scalers. Uh, I think, I can't remember, but I think it was just us at the time and found like 300 hospitals that had vulnerable net scalers or 300, 300 organizations, whether, you know, I basically just dumped it and then looked for like, health, hospital, medical, doctor, nurse, like just healthcare keywords in the, either the autonomous systems that they were in or the organizational details. And lo and behold, I find um, like I, there's a very large medical facility up here in, in Washington state near Seattle. Um, that's where I go for, you know, my general practitioner doctor, my, you know, when I broke my shoulder snowboarding, that was the, you know, that was the place to put it back together. But I find two net scalers from my doctor that are both vulnerable to this this thing, and I'm like, this is an SSL term, like terminator, right? If you exploit this thing because it's SSL VPN, you're gonna have access to the whole network, right? That's just how VPN works. So, um, I then had sort of this like, how do I tell them about this thing, right? And I I went I went to their website, started typing in security, and I'm getting things like, here's the phone number for the parking lot security, you know, or here's the phone number of these. <laughs> weird happening and i'm like this is not the security i need um found a guy on linkedin that said he worked for the hospital's it staff so i you know didn't have any mutual connections i tried to send him a message with the like the 200 characters that they give you and i was like hey i work in information security these two ip addresses are net scalers on your network they have this vulnerability you know you need to patch them never heard back from him um but sort of in the process i think that's when i went on twitter and i was like hey you know we have us, us people in, in the private sector, the non-healthcare private sector, have a lot of tools and skills that, you know, most of us were working, but then we also can't, you know, we can't leave the house. We're stuck at home. We have more spare time than we ever did. So um, a friend of mine, Ohad Zeidenberg, who I'd met in Israel at Blue Hat, saw me tweet about it, pings me, says, hey, I was thinking about trying to set up a, a you know, a collective or a group of people that want to help out. One thing leads to another, um, he and I, and then another guy that works with me, this guy, Chris, and then uh, Mark Rogers of DEF CON fame, basically started this thing up, used a bunch of our connections to, you know, companies that gave us like free Slack and free G Suite and free Shodan and free Gray Noise and a whole bunch of other tools just kind of got donated to the group. And then, yeah, we set up, you know, it was whatever, it took a, a month to build to like 1,200 people. Um, we had tons of different, it was largely U.S. just because of most of the connections that we had were United were U.S. based, but we did have like um, uh, the U.K., one of the U.K. informations like U.K., S.K. or U UCSC, I don't know, 
I can't remember all the acronyms anymore, but we had some, we had Europol, we had Interpol, we had some of the UK healthcare. We had a guy actually out in the Faroe Islands, um, which I had to look that up, which I thought it was cool. He was like the, he was the cybersecurity, uh, cybersecurity guy for the police department of like 10 people in the entire like Faroe Island. But he joined, yeah, he, he joined and he was, you know, he was a really cool dude. And, you know, we, it, it was, it was just cool to see a lot of people coming together to do um, good things just, just because it was the right thing to do. Uh, and then of course the cool sort of the, the, the resulting parts of that was, you know, I mean, getting, we got written up in wired magazine, which was kind of neat being like, that was the first tech magazine I ever read as like a teenager it was wired back in like the mid nineties. Um, but what was more interesting, or I thought was more, uh, long-term sort of good at results. So we had somebody from the U.S. government, one of the agencies, told us that they, they're like, what you guys did in a month um, in terms of, of sort of proof of concept of private and public sector working together. They're like, we've been trying to do this in the government for a decade and we never figured it out. And you guys somehow managed to do this in a month. Um, so what it did was it really laid the groundwork for a lot of the, at least especially in the U.S. and I suspect in other, other countries, probably the, the Five Eyes mostly, but hopefully others. Um, was it just showed that like, with the right um, sort of the right boundaries and, and guidelines on how we can engage private and public sector can work together. Right. Because the public sector is always going to lag way behind the private sector just in terms of they don't pay their people as much. You know, most of us want to work for, you know, a company that's, you know, private sector. So the government is kind of behind the curve. But once they're allowed to collaborate with people and once people that are on our side of the fence are like, hey, let's let's just give this information over because it's the right thing to do versus trying to say, oh, well, you have to buy our stuff first. Um, some of the ways that we see like CISA in the United States were releasing all of these different, uh, you know, these binding directives and these new guidances like last, I think it was June 13th or 14th. Um, they released a document about how you need to harden and isolate your, your base word management controllers or your BMCs off the internet which is a lot of the guidance was directly taken from work and research that my team here at Eclipsium did finding vulnerabilities in BMCs last fall. So it's kind of that stuff of, you know, and I was in, I'm in a community where we were working directly with CISA when we found that stuff, we said, Hey, how do we want to engage? We were, you know, CISA was saying, okay, we will talk to our other five eyes partners for you. You know, we have, they have the methods to talk to other governments. Um, we just talked to our government. So it was kind of a cool, like, hey, this is how the process works. And then months later, they're releasing documents saying, hey, this is what you need to do. So that, that to me, was the real power of the CTI League. We, it was, uh, we did a lot of good. At a certain point, it kind of plateaued as to how much a volunteer group can do, right? A lot of what we initially did was perimeter assessment stuff. We had Somebody volunteered up some info. They had a database of basically like RDP credentials that were being traded on the dark web that we were able to leverage and cross-reference across hospitals and say, hey, we found credentials to your terminal server. You know, you need to go short turn these accounts off or we found vulnerable stuff or like SMB exposed to the Internet over here. Once we got through all that and the attacks mostly went back to your standard sort of phishing and that kind of things, there wasn't really anything we could do. Right. Because you're not, you know, just because it's it's volunteers. So you can't, you know, they're like, well, we'll hire Mandian or we'll hire Microsoft or CrowdStrike to do to actually let give them access into our network to look at our logs, to look at our stuff. Um, so, yeah, it was it was cool for what it did. Um, 
I don't know. It was fun. It was a lot of work too. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, uh, I can't remember from which month uh, me and Stefan uh, was invited, and uh, I know initially it was like a massive overload. It's so many people. It's so many, so much information. And I, I think it was. Uh, I mean, you said it started around March 2020. I think it was like yeah. the the month month after. I know me and Pierre had a look uh, like last week or something um but um uh, and we uh, i wanted to see like where did it go because i didn't uh, didn't have time um and so i wanted to see where it ended sort of and you could see like um uh, there's still some messages being sent uh, but it's a huge drop in in activities and, and so on one thing that i uh, found really really useful both in terms of our mdr customers and uh, and also for the uh, for other customers as well was the um, uh, the takedown uh, takedown possibilities um, because there were people from ISPs hosting providers uh, and so on. So if you had like a phishing landing site, you could uh, publish it and, and request the takedown, and someone looked at it. And that was really really useful feature actually, uh, but of, of course hard to maintain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did. It was it was we had a lot of custom tooling that was that was built like on the fly right we had the because the first i think i think the first like tool that we got access to was john at showdown basically said here's like the he basically gave us a, 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 a api key that was the very like the top license that you could get so the you know tens of thousands of dollars a year license for showdown he's like here this is for the guy for you guys to use so one of the devs there or my main developer that was there built this bot that essentially it connected into Showdown's what it's called their Firehose feed, which is its real-time streaming information as its crawlers scan the internet. It, it's real-time data coming out of them. Um, so this thing ingested all of this data, and then it looked for uh, it had you know certain things it would look for different vulnerabilities, different ports being exposed, um, and then say, okay, you know, when it found these things, it would it would basically look for if there's these bad things happening on networks that match these sort of regex of healthcare words and, and, you know, things like that, flag it. And then I think the, the final iteration he built, it was actually scraping RDP screenshots and running them through OCR that would then look so that if it was like a terminal service says you've connected to, you know, Midland medical facilities, you know, like the, the you know, the banners of like, oh, if you're not an authorized user, so it would scrape that and it would OCR the text to look and to see if that was a logon banner for anything that had medical or healthcare in it. Um, yeah, and so Ooh, then we could cool. we just got alert of like yeah, I found this thing, found this thing, and we you know we had uh, at least in the U.S. there's what they're called uh, ISAC groups, which I can't remember what that acronym is for, but there's a there's like a healthcare ISAC, financial ISAC. There's for most of the the industries there's an ISAC, which is you know those points of contact were invaluable because well you know random people meet, you know pinging someone on LinkedIn. Um, that's not very successful. We actually had a couple times where people tried to go and notify companies on their own. And I think the funniest one was somebody, uh, tried, they, they basically threatened that they were going to bring their lawyers in because we were blackmailing. We're like, no, 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 we're, we're oh. just trying to give you some free information saying there's a hole on your network that you need to close. Um, we're not asking you for money. Um, so that was, that was a weird, that was a, it was one of the weird challenges we hadn't expected to see. So once we had like sort of official out official channels to funnel the information to. We found that like, you know, hospitals were super grateful and they were shutting things down 
within like hours or days of being notified. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's crazy. It's um, but I mean, it's a it was a huge uh, uh, huge impact. At least I hope so. And uh, I mean, uh, uh, I mean the effort uh, people were putting into that. I mean, it's amazing. And that's uh, uh, we talked a little bit about our last uh, from our last episode about community and how much we love the community and how people help each other uh, learn from each other and and, uh, and this is i mean the uh, the essence of community work basically um as i see it but um uh, i want to hear a little bit about you the, the work you do um today um a lot of firm research and yeah and one specific thing that you um you talk about it and it's uh, uh, it's available on youtube from uh, from your Blue talk on the ChatGPT and uh, and uh, and reverse engineering, I, I mean it, it's awesome. There's a lot of ChatGPT is uh, like in the uh, like in the middle of everything right now, as it feels. Okay, right, so how did you get into the? Uh, uh, I mean, from networking to, uh, of course, you you did your um, you, everything at MSRC and so on. But how did you get into like firm research? I mean, really looking lo- lo- from a to the lowest level. Yeah, yeah, it was. It's, it's been an interesting. It's sort of. It's been an interesting um, uh, progression, uh, and I think, basically, like I said, what 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 had happened last year, uh, well, a little bit over a year ago, is you know the, the the other startup that I was at was, you you know you could see it was in the death throes. You know the ground is getting squishy. You can you know there's questionable how long that would last. So I actually mentioned something offhandedly to one person who had been in the CTI league. And then within like a day, somebody else uh, had, had been like, this person apparently told someone else. And I get a message on signal from someone saying, Hey, are you all right? I hear you're looking for a new job. And I'm like, well, yeah. Um, and so one thing led to another and he, I was introduced to uh, Yuri, who's the CTO at Eclipsium or sorry, the CEO at Eclipsium. We got to chatting and he's like, you know, let's, he's like my, you know, Alex, who's, who's my boss. Uh, he's like, he's my CTO, but he's also he has a research group to run. Um, and as the company's gotten bigger, he just doesn't have time to do both jobs. So um, now I had, I had gotten introduced to Eclipsium years before. Um, there's two uh, researchers here, uh, Mickey Shakov and Jesse Michael who do a lot of, uh, they've done a bunch of DEF CON talks about hacking bootloaders, secure boot, driver bypasses. Um, And so I want to say it was there, they did one of it, I think they called it screwed drivers back in 2018, 2019. And I had been the case manager who got that report, right? Because it came in for Windows. And at the time it was one of those, okay, I was like, this is a really interesting report. This is really bad. Um, but the way the vulnerability worked wasn't really something Microsoft could fix, right? Because it had to do with the driver signing and I, I, the details escape me, but it's go Google screwed drivers and you'll get the details on how it worked. Um, so I'd already kind of, uh, been introduced to Eclipsium's research. And then as I was on the way out from MSRC going to Defender, they sent in another one, uh, which was, I think it was, there was a hole in the boot and they were, there was a grub bootloader thing that they found which, you know, then became another DEF CON talk. Um, and so I, I kind of knew, and I, I want to say that I had, oh, Mickey, 
Um, so, you know, being over here on the West coast of the United States, there's, you know, for those uh, listeners who don't know, Washington is in the very top left corner. If you're looking at the United States and right below it is Oregon. Well, that's where Nikki and Jesse and actually where Eclipsium is headquarters in Oregon. So it's two and a half hour drive away. Um, they had come up, Mickey and, uh, his wife and another friend of ours, uh, this guy, Joe Fitzgerald or, uh, Joe Fitzpatrick, who does hardware hacking. He's one of the like world's great, most prestigious hardware hackers. So I got to hang out with Mickey for a week and we just, you know, we're talking, I'm learning how to like dump firmware off a TP link router using probes and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, once it was, once I talked to Eclipse, I was like, okay, I know these people are cool. I know the researchers are super smart. And it probably helped a little bit that because I come from a network engineering background and because I'd spent so much time beating on routers and load balancers, last year as I was interviewing, I was in the process of just, you know, it wasn't even a, it was a research project just because I wanted to go speak at some conferences. And the easiest way for me to go speak at conferences is to speak or to, to go to conferences is to speak. Is it's you know it saves me some money on airfare and hotels and and uh, plus I, I now I'm spoiled I don't like to go to a conference unless I'm speaking most of the time. Uh, but I'd been working on something on how to break F5s. Uh, it started off with how I'm going to implant malware and completely just like like persist inside an F5 device. And so as I'm interviewing, I'm kind of mentioning this is the project I'm working on, and the Eclipsium at the time was you know what we do. What we do is firmware security and attestation and sort of inventory and, you know, hash checking to make sure that the integrity of all the firmware on like, say your laptop or your server is there is either up to date, nothing's changed, no like DXE drivers in your, in your UEFI uh, uh, stack have all of a sudden been modified or your bootloader hasn't changed something bad, but the network coverage wasn't, uh, the same parity so it was kind of like hey come in you know a lot about network security and these network devices you can help do like your research can help drive to 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 bring them closer to like the the capabilities that we have for you know the end user end user systems where we we have really good capabilities for network devices has always been a lot harder um you know for the industry not just for us right there's a lot of um closed source stuff there's a lot of weird Weird, you know, a lot of these devices either don't have a shell or they're hard to get around in or it's restricted. So, um, yeah, so that kind of got me that got me into Eclipsium. And then since I've been here, uh, it's kind of the closest I could say to having a dream job because it's just like I get to just research and break things and hack on stuff all day long and then figure out how to defend it. And, you know, that the load balancer thing I did last year. Um, the last one I did was an echo party in Argentina in November and I got done with that. And my boss was like, okay, that was, that was really good research. I liked all that. He's like, now I need you to do the research that would catch you doing that stuff. Um, which it turns out actually catching it is a lot harder than doing it. Um, so, but that's been fun too. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, and now that I'm here, I just have lots of time to play with different automated firmware analysis tools. And I'm not a coder. I don't know programming. I've used Ida a handful of times, um, but that that kind of dovetails into what you mentioned about ChatGPT. So I, uh, I, I read a blog. Yep. Yep. I mean, from from your session, I mean, I think that's the uses usage of 
ChatGPT in in these cases of reverse engineering and like getting understanding and solve some tasks that you're they're up to. I, I think that's I mean it's brilliant. And uh, yeah. yeah, so <laughs> how how did you get into that? How, I mean, what was your well, plan? Basically, <laughs> the way I got into it was actually uh, it was funny because I'd had a. One of the, my engineers was like, they basically asked me, he's like, hey, we have all these these ISO images of Cisco's iOS operating system. They're like, but we can't actually get the, the actual firmware image out of the ISO. There's some tool you have to run that then dumps the ISO, the actual, the installer out of some other binary. He's like, can you see how this thing works? And I'm like, well, I've never... You know, at the time I was like, I'll give it a shot. You know, I work with guys who are way better in IDA than I am, but I figured out oh, it's like a 50K binary. I mean, how hard can it be? Um, so I like open it up in IDA, just in IDA free. And I'm kind of like clicking around and I found a, a function called FWDEC, which I was like, that seems like short for firmware decrypt. Um, so I kind of clicked through and I find it and it's got this big humongous function that I didn't understand what it was doing. So I just copied it, I copied the function and then pasted it into ChatGPT. And I was like, hey, what is this doing? And it comes back and it's like, this function is taking a series of characters and loading them into memory. These are ASCII characters, you know, give me a very long um, description. And I was like, well, what are, what's the ASCII character? What, what's the string that it's putting in memory? And it kind of spits out this, what it was, uh, I think it was all the chunk that I'd sent it. It basically sent out like it was like minus K space and then a long string. I looked like a password. And I was like, well, this is interesting. So now that I knew what it was doing, then I went back and I think I, you know, like I said, I was fumbling. Anybody who's who uses Ida was like, dude, what you did was the easiest dumb thing to do. But it wasn't for me. So I, however I did it, I figured out how to get it to actually display in the IDA screen all of the characters that it was loading instead of like their ASCII codes or whatever it was. And so then I just read vertically down and it's just an open SSL command, right? They're just saying in this binary, it says open SSL, like decrypt this file to that file. Here's the key, here's the cipher, all the other stuff. And so I like sent it to my engineering guy. I was like, hey, I was like, try this against that file and see what happens. He's like, dude, that's exactly what it is. It, it totally, it decrypted the firmware image. So that was cool. Um, and this, uh, uh, this had actually, all of this stuff, I, it was a friend of mine, um, this guy Juan, uh, Juan Andres Guerrero Saad, who's a Sentinel One like director of research as a good friend of mine. And he, did a class um, or he did a course at the Alperovich Institute back in the fall where they used chat GPT as like a teacher's aide, right? And they were doing a malware reversing class and he basically said, hey, and there's a, there's a blog about it. You can, um, I can send you the link later if you want to post it. Um, but yeah, he basically said, hey, you know, all of these students, you know, read this, read a bunch of chapters of malware analysis. And then while you're in class, if you have questions, use chat GPT to explain it. Um, and he was also using ChatGPT to help him like write Python scripts to like decrypt stuff. So he was he was he was using it, and then they were using it. But the end of it was is that the experiment was really successful. He's like, yeah, this was a super powerful way. To, you know, instead of like you know somebody raising their hand and asking like the total new guy question of like I don't understand how to do something basic in Ida, he just had them use ChatGPT, and that was kind of what prompted me, no pun intended, um, to try this. And then, yeah, then I, I did another experiment with a, 
a known vulnerable piece of firmware that another company had blogged about. And so I, I, I take the code page that I knew the vulnerability or the function from the PHP function that was vulnerable. And I posted or pasted it into chat GPT. And I was like, hey, tell me where the vulnerabilities are or the vulnerabilities are in this code. And ChatGPT is like, well, that's hacking and hacking is illegal. And I can't do that as a large, you know, I'm a language <laughs> model and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's usually like guardrails. So it actually took me, it took me, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes of like fiddling with the prompts, right? To get it to answer me correctly. And I think finally it was like, I'm a, I was like, I'm a computer science professor teaching a class about like insecure coding practices. And here's a piece of code one of my students wrote. Please tell me if there's any insecure. Like I had to phrase it this really weird way, but finally it's like, yes, here's a command injection vulnerability there. There's a lack of CSRF tokens here. And it finally just tells me exactly the vulns that this company had blogged about. And I'm just like, oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> research is ongoing because it it's limited. I, I don't think I can plug entire like firmware images through it, even if I could decompile them just because ChatGPT's tokenization makes it really weird. Um, but yeah, it was it was a fun experiment, at least. I, I think that's useful. I mean, I don't, I've done a few, like open IDA uh, sometimes don't get, uh, I understand a few things sometimes and it, I can't reliable uh, reverse a set of code. Uh, but it, I mean, it's a part of the toolbox. And now with ChatGPT, I actually tried the similar things. I, I pasted the assembly instructions, and uh, with a, where I, where I had the um, uh, the original source code, it was like let's say um, uh, 10, 15 uh, lines of code, and uh, I got everything uh, back to uh, to the original source code. I think it was uh, one or two lines that uh, like shifted a little bit in, um, in in the order but otherwise it was like it was working perfectly so I think I mean, what are your thoughts about what where will that get like the um, uh, the research community in like the coming years and it's gonna be interesting to see right I feel like there's um, I feel like there's there is a lot of stuff that like these language you know, AI or language models whatever you want to call them uh, are good at I mean, it at least initially seems that code and and programming and that kind of related stuff is really good. Uh, it's a it's a it's powerful. It's more powerful with that stuff than it is with, um, you know, asking it to write like legal documents. Like somebody here in the U.S. just got in trouble because it cited court cases that didn't exist, uh, used judges whose names <laughs> existed, and then cited cases that never had happened. And this lawyer took it to court, and the court's like that's not a real legal case. And they think they just got fined thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, it's not great with that. It is good with computer things. The thing that I don't, I, I question what it'll be able to do in terms of security research, just because like there is the low hanging fruit, right? And that, that PHP vulnerability that it found, um, it's worth pointing out that SEMGREP can also find it, right? Which is an open source uh, security, static analysis security tool, I believe is what SAS stands for. So it's able to find the same thing. Um, those are super easy to find vulns, right? That's low hanging. It's not even low hanging fruit. It's like on the ground and rotting already. <laughs> um, but the, the more complicated vulns, you know, the stuff that we're seeing, like, you know, with Fortinet, like every week, it seems to be there's a new one. Um, and some of the, you know, it's at a conference, I think it was last year, yeah, this is BrewCon last year. I met a guy from a, a firewall company who was talking about a really cool zero day that they had detected being used against their firewalls. Like, 
I think there's a level, there's a degree of having to sort of think outside the box and just think, think in a way like computers are good at doing what they're told to do. And even a language model is like, here's your training data. This is how you interact. This is how you speak to a human. This is the, like the sentence structure and, and all that kind of stuff. But what we have to do in security research is so detached from like the normal way that people think. I don't know that a language model is ever going to be, or an AI-ish system is going to be good at that, um, other than like doing some of the menial tasks, right? They may be able to wrap it around fuzzers and, you know, do fuzzing more efficiently where it's, you know, it can tell, oh yeah, okay, crash, but I know based on, you know, based on my, my training model, I know that those crashes are pointless because it's not exploitable, um, you know, or here's a sign, here's a little aspect of what I thought would be a non-exploitable crash that maybe is exploitable. Um, so I think and that's some of the, the menial stuff I think it's going to help with. I think the, the really fun vulnerabilities are still going to have to be found by people, though. Yeah, and uh, I mean, as a researcher, you could potentially get more time to focusing on the right things, having um, your systems to do the uh, the the foundational work that's uh, that just takes time that doesn't require a certain skill level or whatever it might be you can do it with this uh, AI technology but uh, you still need uh, human brains to uh, put things together uh, and so on. yeah um, wow an hour runs fast uh, I mean we um, you promised us an hour and we <laughs> almost we're almost there now. Um, uh, Stefan Pierre, anything? No, I think you. Uh, I'm a fan of community, and the security community is really nice. And and you're talking about conferences, etc. Do you have any like favorite security conferences, or any conferences you want to embrace listeners to go to, oh, uh, yeah. etc.? So. Absolutely, I would be remiss if I was talking about Europe uh, uh, and didn't give some shoutouts. So. Uh, I don't. I will never say I have a favorite security conference just because there are, there's a bunch that I love going to. But in my top list, I would say definitely. So in Europe, Brucon. Uh, it's in Belgium every year. Um, this year, it's I believe in Mechelen again, and it's uh, end of September. That's a really good conference. Uh, Troopers. Uh, it's out in Heidelberg in Germany. Um, I think it's actually might be actually going on right now. Um, but yeah, it's usually end of June. And those are those are two great ones. Actually, the only two I've been to in Europe, but those are both uh, phenomenal. Um, I also there's another conference that just started up last year here in the U.S. and it's called LabsCon, and it's uh, it's put on by a lot of the folks who used to work for Kaspersky and who used to put on the uh, Security Analyst Summit conference that Kaspersky did. Actually, turns out SAS, as we call it, is coming back this year. Um, but probably with different people running it, um, other than it being Kaspersky's conference. Um, so yeah, it's, that one's a really fun conference. It's kind of private, uh, invite only, you, like, you have to fill out and, and request an invitation to be able to buy a ticket to go there. But it's, uh, similar to the way SAS was, uh, it's just, it's tons of talks, you know, it's the second day of the three tracks of 25 minute talks a piece. So there's just a ton of material and all like just top top of the notch or top notch speakers about talking about like really cool stuff. Um, last year, and yeah, last year we had people talking about Chinese incursions into telco networks. We had somebody talking from somebody from Bellingcat talking about how they used open source intelligence to track down the uh, these Russian soldiers that had done a, 
victim done a horrible war crime against a Ukrainian soldier. And they actually tracked the guy down to the point where they found his phone number and they called him to ask him if he was the guy in the video, like murdering this Ukrainian soldier. Um, so that was pretty cool to have the guys that did it talk about oh. like, this is how we did it. And here's how we matched a crack on a sidewalk that was in the background of a video to a Google streets camera view of the same crack in the sidewalk. Like, yeah, it was, it was just mind blowing. So yeah, those are, those are probably the three definitely um, ones that I love going to that I'll always try to go to. Um, but yeah, nice. I, I keep being, I'm, I'm trying to make it out to Sweden for one year security conferences. They just, they didn't turn me, they turned me down this year and next year. Yeah. Hopefully they change their mind for, for next year. Um, uh, we would love to see you in Sweden. Uh, it would be awesome. Yeah, I've, I've always wanted to come out to, to the, the, the north part of Europe where my, my heritage comes to. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice. Yeah, thank you very much. So. All right, so um, just to finalize with a like, non-tech at all question. So what will you do this summer? Would you have a vacation? Do you have time for a vacation? Um, I'm gonna work. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I have, uh, I have, uh, I have kids, so it'll be, uh, it'll be a combination of probably working, trying to take my kids everywhere, and go, you know, go to the swimming pools and play outside. Uh, you know, most of my family lives in in a part of the state of California that's just way too hot to visit in the summer. It's, you know. I don't know what would it be in Celsius, forty degrees Celsius on average, something like that. Yeah, it's yeah, it's obscenely hot. Uh, so yeah, I don't I don't travel much. I'll be going to Vegas for Black Hat DefCon. Um, that's in August. Yeah, I'm just mostly trying to stay sane and stay healthy, and you know, try not. I, I try to detach from my computers as much as I can when I'm not working. Go fly some drones. I don't know. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thank you. It's been a really nice of you to lend an hour. And, so. and our first guest. I mean, this is awesome. Um, <laughs> we, yeah, we're really happy to have you. And that concludes today's episode of Security Dojo. We hope you find it informative and valuable in your journey towards a safer and more secure digital world. Remember, security is not just about technology, but also about mindset and best practices. Stay vigilant, keep your software updated, use strong and unique passwords, and be cautious when you're sharing sensitive information online. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback helps us improve and reach more people who can benefit from our content. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Security Dojo to receive our latest episodes and updates. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whatever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for tuning in and until next time, happy hunting!